we underestimate the complexity and how hard it is to create change in the for-purpose sector. You know, the government's money is all of our money, it's taxpayers' money, and there is a responsibility to make sure that it's spent well. I'm just not sure that we fully understand what spending well means. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Joe Taylor. Joe, she's a Brit that calls Australia home. She is also an experienced philanthropist. We'll go into that. Having distributed $400 million to good causes, Joe started her for-purpose career while studying a law degree. You'll hear how she threw herself into RAG, and for those Brits who are listening, you'll know what that is, raise and give, and how she was not looked back since then, and roles, professional roles she has had, and professional experiences have fueled her passion for fighting injustice. Really awesome conversation. Before we dive into that, though, can I just ask, whatever platform you're on, whether on Apple, Spotify, or another, please hit follow, and if you like what you're hearing, if you could please leave a review, that would be wonderful. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Joe Taylor, massive welcome to Purposely Podcast. No, well, thanks for having me, Mark. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, really good to connect. And you're the executive chair of pay what it takes. What does it do? What's its purpose? What's its mission? Yeah, I've been in the position for a few years now, and it really came out of, I was working with another foundation, um, the Paul Ramos Foundation at the time, and we'd been focused on really trying to understand how we could support um, the for-purpose sector to really be able to maximise their impact, and we'd been focused on capacity and capability building. And I came across the work that was happening in the States around Pay What It Takes that was headed up by foundations and Bridgespan. And I sent it to the CEO that I was working with in the other foundation. And I said, do you think we have this problem here? And so the question around Pay What It Takes is, do we actually give enough money to organizations to be able to do the work that we uh, want to see happen? Or do we only give money that covers the costs of projects and therefore organizations are left in this kind of starvation cycle because they can't cover the costs of indirect or administration costs? And there's been a big thing about it in the States for at least the past 10 years and has found that they do have a real problem there. So my question to my other CEO was like, do you think this is a problem here? Because I had been a leader on the other side of the fence and I'd felt it really keenly. So to actually see some research about it was incredible. And he says, I reckon there is. We need to do our own research. And so the Pay What It Takes movement in Australia was born. We both put some money in from the foundations and we are asking this question. Do Australian funders have inaccurate expectations of how much overhead or indirect costs are required to run a for-purpose organisations? And if that's so, does it mean that these organisations are starved of the necessary core funding and therefore they can't actually create the impact that we all want to fund? And so um, we had a great kind of partnership between a group of organisations to explore that question. And the, uh, the result was a resounding, yes, we've got a problem in Australia about paying what it takes. And over the next few years, we've used that research to try and unpick how can we solve this problem together. 
So as executive chair, I've been had the absolute joy to work with foundations, for purpose organisations and others across the sector to see if we can tackle this challenge and give for purpose leaders and organisations the funding that they need in order to crack these complex issues that we're all kind of grappling with. And yeah, being having been a fundraiser or a leader in a non-profit, being on that side of the fence, you know, not receiving the full cost or full cost recovery, they often talk about in the UK, full cost recovery to do or deliver the service that you want to deliver and funders giving a small amount and expecting the world. But I just want to sort of expand the starvation cycle a little bit and what you uncovered through that when you're doing this work. Well, we were doing it. I mean, you know, at some point it was very tricky when we were doing it because it was also just before the pandemic. But in some ways, it really did shine a light on what happens when organisations don't have enough money to pay their staff well, enough money to cover the cost of IT or cybersecurity um, or marketing on fundraising in order to make sure that their systems and processes um, are really strong. And so what we what we found is is that in the pandemic, like lots of organizations had less than three months operating costs on their balance sheet. And that's because when you are only receiving funding to cover the project costs, not only is there not enough money to cover those administrative costs, but there's not enough money to make sure that actually you've got the kind of nest egg that you need to make sure that you can weather the challenges and be resilient. And you know, we have a rhetoric in Australia, which is not uncommon with both the States and, and the UK, which is, you know, our uh, for-purpose organisations do exceptionally well on the smell of an oily rag. And we're all super proud of that for some reason. But actually what that means is, is that people are burnt out. You can't attract the talent that you need. One of the key things in Australia is if you get somebody who's really awesome in the for-purpose sector, and there are many of those leaders government and sometimes the corporate sector come along, then they can really easily offer more money because it's very difficult for for-purpose organisations to pay market rate. And if you think about what's happening right now with digital technologies and artificial intelligence, uh, it's no surprise that, again, the for-purpose sector is you know, really struggling to keep up with that because there is no coffers in the bank and people don't want to fund that work. So, You've got this perpetual cycle of if you don't cover the cost of the work, like you say, CEOs, rather than focusing on the work, end up doing lots of fundraising. And even then, you know, you're trying to cut corners all the time. You're trying to get as much pro bono support as you can. And it just seems a weird, weird anathema to me that this sector has the hardest jobs and yet they have the least amount of money. Yeah, so just even think about the, the sort of how, how we ended up in this position, eh? Because from a government perspective, I kind of get it in terms of trying to sort of eke out value at every point because these are, they have a limited resources. In a private sector perspective, there seems to be my experiences that people will, when it comes to commercial activities, are really bring their business head to the to the table. But when it comes to charity, some very commercial people suddenly start you know, not wanting to pay for things, the full value of things, or get sort of heart-driven rather than head-driven. And then that leads to, you know, charities not having the funding they need to deliver the service they're delivering or develop what they need to do um, because the pressure from funders, there's that sort of, and, and power is a big part of this. But yeah, what, what do you think the origins are or the sort of 
the fundamentals of how we've got to this position that um, really holds non-profit organisations back? Um, so I think it depends how nerdy you want me to get. So I think if we go right back, there's a couple of things, which is that, you know, basically we, in the 60s and 70s, we went through this whole new public management kind of focus. And globally, people wanted uh, organisations to be the most effective and efficient that they possibly could be. And that was good business sense. So if you come from the corporate world, something that's drilled into you consistently is that you need to cut costs in order to make more money and actually, you know, do that in a way which means that you're still effective and efficient. Actually, I mean, I think it's really interesting that if you're in business and uh, you're really successful, you get more customers on the whole and basically you bring in more money. If you're in a sole purpose organization and you're really successful and you get new customers or service delivery, you have to deal with those often without more money. So you actually have to make your money go kind of thing because it does often your increase in the need doesn't come at with associated with an increase in kind of income. Again, we've got ways of working in business that don't actually fit the way that the for purpose sector kind of works. So you've got new public management that came along and that drove, you know, if you look at any of the kind of research and evidence into the NHS, that was one of the big drivers of, of what brought down quality because you had people who didn't understand the business actually trying to make it more effective and efficient. So you've got that. You've also got neoliberalism, which is more of the focus of the individual rather than communities and that families should be able to look after themselves. And so again, when you look in Australia, particularly in the early 2000s, when uh, John Howard and um, the Liberal Party was in power, there was a lot of money that was actually cut from the sector, a lot of peak bodies, and that that money has never been replaced. And that was really ideological, which is you don't need a big state because actually families should look after themselves. So all of those organisations that were looking after people in vulnerable positions without families the ability to look after themselves, a lot of those organisations lost funding and it wasn't replaced by philanthropic organisations because actually you can't do that. And so we actually had a lot of funding being taken away. So it's a combination of those two things as well. And then finally, I think the other thing that's it's really happened around this is, is that we often think because people get paid less in the sector, that somehow they're not as skilled as other people in the kind of corporate sector. Whereas anybody who's worked on the full purpose side knows that you have to be able to do like at least two jobs of skills that you often are not trained in and, and be able to learn that really quickly to do it at a really high kind of value. And so I think what we've seen as well is that there is a real feeling in our sector that unless you've experienced it, you don't fully understand the complexity of it. And we can tell that when we get um, corporate refugees who kind of come over to the sector and, you know, within a very short space of time say, wow, this is the hardest job I've ever had. So I think generally as a society, on the whole, we underestimate the complexity and how hard it is to create change in the for-purpose sector. And so therefore, we're again, we're applying those principles in a way that are not appropriate, but we also don't have a really good understanding of how change happens and what is the real cost of making those changes. And, you know, I think that's something that if we decided to explore together, we'd be surprised at how much money it would take to actually tackle the complexity kind of that we've got. 
Yeah, and other guests of this podcast have talked about scarcity and abundance and, and scarcity yeah. being rife in the charity sector. And, you know, I remember, um, you know, and the irony of this, you're trying to solve youth unemployment or engagement of young people and and contributing to society. And some of those charities, you know, you, you go and meet the people on the ground doing the work. And the first thing they'll state to you is, hi, you know, my name's Mark and I've, I'm in this role for six months. I've got another six months of funding for my role. And then after that, we're really not sure if we can continue this work. And these are big societal issues. They're going to be really beneficial to all of us if we solve them, yet often run off the, you know, limited resources. So there's some irony in there. Just tell us a bit about the initiative. So you'd seen this bridge span initiative in, in the USA and you'd, as a group of funders, had got together and said, yeah, we can see evidence of you know, this the, this issue holding us back in Australia. What was the plan and, and how was it executed? And then tell us a bit about how it's landed because it'd be fascinating to know how it's influenced. So we worked, so there was um, Origin Foundation, the Port Ramsey uh, Foundation, Social Ventures Australia, the Centre for Social Impact, um, uh, were really kind of at the forefront of the beginning of the of the project, and Philanthropy Australia, our peak body. What we decided is that we first of all we really did need to understand uh, is there a problem. So we did the obligatory kind of literature review and case studies and research, and kind of came together to see is this is this really what's happening here? Uh, philanthropic interviews as well as for purpose interviews, and what we found was there was kind of issues across our ecosystem. So it is true that underfunding of indirect costs leads to lower capability and effectiveness for all the things we've just discussed, and that the drivers of that indirect cost underfunding are complex and really deep-rooted. Again, as we've just uh, discussed, it comes from experience and ideology and, and lots of different things. But we also found that one of the key things in Australia is that we use indirect costs as a proxy to assess efficiency and effectiveness or fundability, and that there is no evidence to suggest that low indirect costs means that an organisation is effective. In fact, the opposite is possibly true. And so, so that w- we realised that that was one of the kind of myths that we would have to tackle and that people were kind of minimising their indirect costs because they really had a belief that people wouldn't pay for them. And in fact, we were all colluding kind of around the issue, which is what you're talking about around the power kind of imbalance. So for-purpose organisations really felt like, well, there's not really much point in putting my indirect costs because no one's going to cover it anyway. And also, I'll just, we'll just look like we're ineffective and inefficient. And that funders on the whole were not kind of grappling with the idea and they were just accepting what people were giving to them as kind of budgets. So we, from their research, possibly. It is absolute dance. (laughs) And I think, you know, when we think about, um, I I was really lucky. My first philanthropic job, I worked for a really progressive organization in the UK. I didn't know it at the time, first kind of out of uni unrestricted funding for three years, you know, uh, funding things that no one was funding at the time, like youth, um, homelessness, sex trafficking, like 
it was, it, you know, I, yeah, I didn't realize how kind of lucky I was. And they did that because most of the people that worked there had run NFPs and they knew how difficult it was to get in unrestricted funding. And they knew that this would plug kind of a lot of gaps. And so when I came to Australia and I ran an organization that really was only able to get all of our funding was project-based funding. And so at one point, I think I had like 74 funders for like the work to be able to do it. And ultimately, year after year after year, we were consistently running down our reserves because, you know, it was a bit like this idea, if you just bring more funding in, then it'll be fine. But actually, when you are actually bringing more funding that doesn't cover the true cost, you just big you know you're just actually creating a bigger kind of problem and so that was really I really understand that dance because the work that we did was independently validated 24 times in 25 years we knew that the work was really really good and yet still people only wanted to fund this project and they didn't want to fund the indirect costs and that's really what we found in the research is that my experience as an NFP leader, as a for-purpose leader, was prevalent across the organisation and that it was creating financial vulnerability, that the power dynamics really were at play and that those organisations that were able to build relationships and trust with their funders, they just didn't have this problem. They were having really awesome conversations with their funders. They were having really awesome, honest conversations about their budget And they couldn't speak highly enough of those funders that were actually practicing kind of pay what it takes, even though it wasn't kind of called that. And then the final thing that came out was that this is really fundamentally all about the question, how do we know that the work that we're funding is actually creating an impact? And if we could crack that question, then actually some of this would be a technical kind of issue. So we did the research. And through that research, we galvanized the sector and then we launched the research and we ran a whole bunch of workshops across the sector across a year We uh, with a masterclass at the end and also had funders and for-purpose organizations come together in an action learning set so that we could really understand some of the issues that were from an implementation stage. So we had like over 200 people at the launch in the workshops, uh, again, close to 100 people in each workshop. Each workshop looked at something different. So the first one was on strategy. The second one was on the financial nuts and bolts. The third one and the fourth one, which was uh, a two-parter, was about communication and the narrative. And then we brought all of that together in a masterclass where we spent a day together with, uh, again, funders and for-purpose organizations saying, okay, knowing what we need to know now, what are the key challenges and what should we focus on next? And through that process, we're now into the next phase and we're going to focus on implementation because ultimately what we found is, is that this is, as we've just been discussing, this is not a technical issue alone. This is not a case of just whack 20% or 30% on top of your project costs. But because of that financial vulnerability, the power, relationships and measurement, this is an adaptive issue that together we need to solve, which will include changing some of our mental models as well as finding some new technical ways of working about impact. And is there a danger that you end up, say, in those sessions with people who are converted anyway? Or actually, have you been successful in getting some of those people and those organizations, those funders, 
to the table who actually were just only funding, you know, project costs and they were very strict around um, ratios around admin versus, you know, full, full straight delivery. Were you able to get the right people at the table? Oh, it's such a great question. And if I put my campaigning hat on, the first cabs off the rank are always going to be the people who are more values aligned, who actually want to know more and want to do it kind of anyway. So I certainly feel like at the beginning of this process, it was about finding the tribe and making sure that people had the right skills and tools to do that. But what we've heard over the year is that particularly, I mean, I hate the word philanthropic, but people who work in philanthropy have used the report and the information that we've put out to put it on the agenda with their boards. And in fact, Alana Atlas, who's a board member of the Paul Ramsey Foundation and is on the board of Darwin and other for-purpose organisations and is really well known in the corporate sector. When we interviewed Alana about what do you think this means, she was very open about it means I have to shift my mental model um, and I have to start talking to my peers about how this needs to shift and change and how we're actually scuppering what we all want, which is to create this impact. And so we have heard kind of anecdotally that people who work in philanthropy and board members have put it on their board's agendas and had some quite difficult conversations about how they're going to shift their policy and whether that is about examining their indirect cost policy or their indirect cost assumptions. Because often what we're finding is that people don't even have a policy. Uh, It's actually just an assumption that everybody's holding and making those conversations more visible. And what we've heard from people, and again, this won't surprise you or your listeners, is that this is about peer leadership, that organisations are really more willing to have the conversation and shift their practice if they know that other people are doing it too. And so it's the bravery of organisations to have this difficult conversation um, that's making all the difference. And we've certainly heard that it has to be done at all levels of the organisation. So the fundraisers that raise the funding, the accountants, the CFOs, the bookkeepers who look after the funding, the board and the executive that focus on strategy and implementation, it actually works in an organisation if that conversation is joined up within the organisation. It's a really good point, really good point around both sides. So, you know, the nonprofits themselves and also the funders, because I, I pick up that sometimes you'll see on a charity's website or in their sort of narrative around, you know, 100% of the funds donated go to you know, foot project delivery. But what that hides is there's someone paying for the lights to be on, the back office to be covered. It just won't necessarily be you. But it, it sort of feeds that, that what we've just been talking about in a negative way, potentially. Like, you know, why shouldn't keeping the lights on, paying for the photocopier, ensure you can ca- ca- take rent, keep your staff, all that sort of stuff, you know, that we shouldn't collude with some of that... Um, that negative stuff because actually it doesn't help us as a sector no and there's some absolutely brilliant work happening by fundraisers so one of the fantastic things about being the executive of pay what it takes is when we set the organ or set the coalition up it was we really hoped that you know like a thousand flowers would bloom from it we knew that it wasn't just going to be us and there's some really impressive stuff happening in the in australia which is 
inspired by Pay What It Takes. And one of them is a coalition of fundraisers across the sector who have been working on a common narrative. And it's, you know, all the big players are in there. We've been talking to Lisa Allen, who's the head of fundraising at the Smith family. And again, super impressive. They know that this is a challenge, but they also know that if they don't do it collectively, again, it will be very difficult to shift the conditions in the in the system. So they've got, you know, fundraisers are large organizations, smaller organizations, they've got strategic advisors on fundraising, they've got people who are going to be using te- fundraising technology and really picking up on the narrative from the original pay what it takes so that we've got a common language around exactly what you're saying, which is don't penalize us for indirect costs. Let's shift the narrative on indirect costs. And I think what's really interesting in that, again, is that it is some solace about being brave when you've got others around you. And, you know, pay what it takes, you know, wasn't, and in fact, I don't think any of us quite like the language, but we just never came up with anything kind of better. But it wasn't in our lexicon a few years ago and it wasn't something that we were visibly talking about, but it is much more common kind of now and people refer to it all the time i know another organization that works really hard on behalf of regional and rural small charities because of course just by the sheer size of an organization if you're small you've probably got a higher proportion of indirect costs because you haven't got those economies of scale and they went to the federal government and asked specifically for a funding round that would help organizations on their indirect costs waiving the pay what it takes report and was successful kind of in that the team at the social impact hub is working with uncharitable and dan poiter about raising awareness in that other sphere so there is lots of really great stuff that's happening uh, that you know uh, the the work that we've done as a coalition has helped to spark and support that work and that's what i really love about this is that this is both funders and for purpose kind of organizations as well look we know that the philanthropic sector in australia is a really important form of funding uh, but we also know that government funding is kind of where most of the charities get their funding from and we know that this is a problem in government funding as well but we really felt like we had to get our house in order in philanthropy and to actually kind of see what some of the solutions were uh, in order for us to you know actively talk to government about what they're funding but we know that other organizations and coalitions have used the report to speak directly to government with varying levels of success and I agree with you. What you said earlier, Mark, is, you know, the government's money is all of our money. It's taxpayers' money. And there is a responsibility to make sure that it's spent well. I'm just not sure that we fully understand what spending well means. Yeah. And that sometimes we we use proxies that we now really understand are, are not that great, just because we don't have anything else to kind of do it. Really good point. Now, changing tact a little bit, because you combine your role as executive chair with with a, another job, which is as CEO of the Siddle Family Foundation. Now, direct question, which is, do they practice what you preach? Do you practice yes. what you preach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other beautiful thing is when new foundations are set up, because the Siddle Family Foundation is a new foundation, but we've heard this from other new foundations, 
new foundations are much more likely to actually embed this in from the beginning because of the report. So we've had that. And um, yes, I'm very happy to say that actually the Siddle Family Foundation has kind of gone the whole hog, which is that it wants to support organisations with unrestricted funding. Um, But if organisations do ask for project costs, because we're led by the people that we work with, then we put 30% on top of that. That's what the report, the Australian report kind of said. And that was in line with the MacArthur report. So the MacArthur Foundation in the States, I mean, they did this incredibly brilliant piece of work, whereas they got accurate, uh, did tax people to look at 130,000 tax records of not-for-profit organisations in the States in order to work out what was the average indirect cost percentage if you wanted to apply that to your project-based funding, and it was 29%. Now, we weren't able to do that because of the way that our records are here in Australia, but it was interesting that the SVA and the um, CSI report on the case studies that they did also came out around 30%. And again, as I said earlier, we know that small organisations are probably going to higher cost. If you've got economies of scale, it'll be lower kind of cost. And also that if you are like advocacy organisation or an intermediary that does networking or you're a science-based organisation, like that does play a bit with the kind of figures of indirect costs. But generally, yeah, we do 30, 30%. But we try and encourage people to actually just ask for unrestricted funding and then they can make a decision about where they want to spend the funding because it's so ingrained in our sector that that is an anathema it's taking us a bit of a while to convince people that we are actually genuine kind of about that and they always come and tell us what they're going to spend the money on so we give them the block you know the money and then I might get this call saying oh look we're thinking about spending it on this would that be okay I'm like yes um, yeah, listen yeah, to that dance that. Yeah. and more of those open, honest conversations. Now, pausing for a minute and taking you right back. So our listeners will be hearing that you don't sound very Australian. Yeah. You, in fact, you grew up in, in the UK and you, and you migrated to down down under, if you like. Um, I did. But yeah, I'd love to sort of start at the beginning. So you did a law law degree, not that the law degree I was did. the beginning necessarily, but yeah, yeah. a law degree yeah, yeah. and at Leicester University. Yeah, I did. And um I, uh, yeah, uh, so funny, isn't it? Because it's, I mean, it is a long time ago, but I went into law because I, yeah, I've always had this social justice bent and I went into law because I had really great visions of being Amnesty's lawyer or Greenpeace's lawyer or all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it took me about two weeks of a law degree in Leicester to work out that that was probably not going to happen. My law lecturer in my constitutional law, day one, uh, arrives in his gowns uh, and opening gambit was... Um, you know, when I went to university, they didn't let women in and uh, it was a lot better kind of then. And so even though Leicester was super progressive at the time, and that's why I chose it, was doing environmental law and lots of really interesting things. Yet we were still in that status quo of uh, law is about, you know, corporations and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, so I love This is early 90s. Yeah, loved it and really enjoyed the course, couldn't get enough of it. It really fed my nerdy 
brain. But I was lucky enough to understand, because of the really strong kind of social justice element of Leicester Uni, that actually, and, and it was at the professionalisation really of the of the charity sector, I just did, I was the head of uh, RAG, which in the student union was like the fundraising bit. And I just realised that actually I could make a career out of this. And I'm quite entrepreneurial. So I took the student RAG from, uh, I like, triple their pro you know their kind of income in the year that I did that work and went all over the country and you raised funds for so many different charities that I got this really interesting view of the charity world in the UK and by the time I left I knew I wasn't going to be a lawyer even though I think I use my law degree skills pretty much every day ever since but yeah I was lucky enough to realize that I could have a career in the charity sector and so tried to be a fundraiser and landed in philanthropy by mistake and have never looked back since. So raise and give for those international uh, listeners, that's what RAG would stand for. So it was a, a kind of movement of raising money for activism or good causes or you know, really good movement, like breeding that sort of culture of purpose, I guess, in the university sector. What was the foundational experience for wanting to sort of get into purpose and, and make a difference to the world? Like, what was the narrative growing up at home? Like, was that something that's quite a keen focus or where did that come from for you? Yeah, I mean, I think my mum in particular has always had this very strong sense of fairness and justice. It would go into that for anybody. So that was really modelled at home. And my eldest has got it as well. I think I think there's something actually innate in some of us. I was always kind of looking out for the underdog as a young person. But also, I just, I don't know, I really like innovations and entrepreneurialism. And that idea that you can combine those things as well. Like, again, I feel like I was super lucky that when I, uh, like being in RAG, which was like using business skills in order to raise funding, but also like graduating in a recession. And, you know, my I was the first person in my family to go to university. So whilst I was at university, I had like 15,000 jobs in order to keep my head above the water and that kind of thing. So, so it was a combination of, understanding that you know the world isn't the same for everyone but also that regardless of wherever you start there's always actually somebody who's worse off than you so I think there was something in that and then I you know I I do think kind of graduating in a recession and not following that law pathway meant that I just had to work it out and like I'm you know, I'm kind of really good at the things that I do. So even like in one of my summers, I got a job at a massive corporation. I ran their travel office for the summer. And at the end of that, you know, the HR guy came and said, do you want to join our graduate program? Like it didn't even cross my mind. I mean, probably stupidly, naively, really, because it could have got a whole lot of training and professional development that it didn't necessarily get in the sector that I ended up in. But it was always thought that I was going to do something that was connected to purpose. And I think the purpose shifted over time. So originally it was international development, but I, yeah, again, I was lucky enough to be associated with organisations in the 90s that was really rights-based in international development and I could see that you know a young white educated woman probably didn't have a lot to offer and that there was that real shift happening about shifting resources from 
the UK and Australia into country offices. And so, yeah, I think it was just, it, I think it was always going to be, it was always going to happen, but finding my place within the sector, I was so lucky that I kind of naturally fell into that where I could bring my kind of knowledge and expertise and my entrepreneurial skills and my connection to understanding that, um, you know, sometimes things happen to people because of the way that the systems work, not necessarily it's their fault. And that was came across really strongly. I worked for a set of family trusts in the UK and we were really interested and did a lot of support for women in prisons. I got to go to Holloway Prison which is a women's prison in London. And it, at that stage, it's still, you know, like Victorian prison. It's horrid. Yeah. Uh, like really not nice at all. And I sat in a session with a bunch of women uh, who were talking about why they were in prison and, you know, what, what they hoped to get out because we were trying to work out how to fund educational stuff within the prison system. And honestly, Mark, like they all had the same family background as me. They were the same age as me. And there was a bit of me that was a bit like, actually, this could easily be me. Like, and it could, none of these women, you know, they're intelligent, smart, caring. You know, we get this view of people who end up in prison, like they're stupid, they're evil, they're this, they're that, they're the rest. It's like, that I felt such an affinity to these women that again, I was like, you know, it really is not that far between somebody who ends up being as successful as I am and somebody who ends up in prison. And actually that's to do with the systems that we work in as well as what happens kind of individually. And so I think that strong sense of social justice has really, yeah, has really stayed with me and has really helped me work out which of the jobs that I want to do as I've gone along in my career. And so big move to end up opposite end of the world. 12,000 miles or whatever it is. <laughs> how, did, how did that journey, because, you know, that's, you know, landlocked Midlands, you're doing your degree in. Um, uh, was that a, was that a, um, we went traveling and never went home? How, how did it play out? No, it's all to do with the love, isn't it, really, as so often it is. So, um, so I've been with my uh, partner for, it'll be 30 years next year, so we met at uni, and he just always wanted to live in Australia. Like it was just one, it was weird. And it, I think, it, you know, really early on in our kind of dating, he was a bit like, I oh, just let you know when I live in Australia. And I was like, Ooh. I mean, I watch Neighbours every night, like every other, you know, um, early 20s year old who was uh, at uni. And I, yeah, didn't pay any attention kind of to it at all. And then when uh, he's a doctor and he was doing his, they, at that stage, he did junior house officer jobs and senior house officer jobs. And he did his junior house officer jobs. And then um, ended up getting a senior house officer job in Perth. And he was like, no, no, I'm like, I'm definitely off. And so he, he went and did that for nine months. And I stayed in London, really loved my job at the time. And at the end of that period, he was like, okay, if you really don't want to come, then I'll come back to London. But I've got a job in Sydney. The Olympics are going to be on. Why don't you just take a year off? Like you've never taken any time off in all the time I've known you. Um, so he lured me to Sydney on the promise of the Olympics and not having to work. And uh, it was a, um, I can't remember which was the one where it rains a lot. I think it's La Nina, isn't it? So it was a La Nina year in Oz, but we didn't, you know, we didn't know that terminology. So I arrived in Bondi as a typical palm and it rained for two weeks. 
And so I was like, this is like Manchester. Like, this is ridiculous, like what's going on. And so I went and found myself a job because I was bored by that point. And I ended up uh, volunteering for an organization. And again, the CEO at the time was incredibly focused on ensuring that the young people in his organization had space and to like do really innovative things and I ended up working with this group of young people who were all similar age to me on this incredible project and I was completely hooked and it's 22 plus years later um and so yeah my uh you know uh, I don't think our families are that chuffed about the whole thing but uh because we're both from the UK uh but yeah, we've had this, uh, been afforded this incredible life in Australia and have two kids and, you know, now citizens and very lucky to have a foot in, in both camps. And yeah, it's been an incredible privilege to live here. And again, so lucky, like one of my first jobs after that job, my next job was working for an organization where 80% of the work was in Aboriginal communities across the country. And again, like, you know, enthusiastic palm rocks up very excited about being able to do this and you know spent six years really being very gently schooled and taught like what Australia is really like from a Aboriginal perspective and again just feel incredibly lucky about the generosity of the people that I worked with that enabled me to like really get a good understanding of our history and my place in it my and my country's kind of place in it and so again the two combination of those two things meant that I really could see that I could um, not only have a beautiful life but also do something useful as well here. And living in a country that isn't where you're from and that's not where you grew up and it's where your family are, st- are still back in the UK do, like is that something it just sort of sits there and is always there and like what's your like, is it, is it, do you sense of something missing in your life sometimes? Or when you go back to the UK, what's your reaction when you return to the UK? Do, and do you do that very often? Yeah, it changes all the time. It's a really interesting part of our lives. Like, I feel like many people who work in this sector, like one of the things that I'm always really aware of is that feeling of belonging and yeah, you know, I lived in Bondi for 20 years, which is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Like I left Manchester at 17 to go to university and didn't return there. So it actually is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. And having my two kids there really changed again. It went from a place where I lived sporadically because I moved, worked a lot and that kind of stuff to somewhere where I really felt like I belonged as we became very ensconced in the community. So I think my connection to belonging and places, like many people, is kind of fraught with different things. When I properly moved to Oz, in some ways I felt like, you know, it, this is all with hindsight, obviously. I, I had to fall out with the UK, really, to be able to come. And so I remember walking through London no, there's last times and there's a family living in the subway at Tottenham Court Road, you know, um, like, some, you know, the adults were literally smoking crack and there was two young kids, their two young kids were running around and, and I, it's like, it was, it was almost like that was the signal. It was like, I can't live here anymore. Like, this is kind of too bad. And, and that was the real, again, that was about me having, to get to a point where I could leave. Otherwise, it was too painful to do that. 
then over the 22 years I've lived apart away from it, I've got those rose colored uh, glasses on in many different ways. And, you know, I miss it and I love it. And I still read The Guardian every day and I still listen to Radio 4. And I've just been very lucky to spend two weeks there with work with the Siddle Family Foundation, speaking to leaders across the country about the stuff that they're doing and so inspired by the work that people are doing when the country is a complete basket case. Like, it is just really amazing. And we miss our families, without a doubt. There is, uh, particularly my parents have, you know, have really done exceptionally beautiful work as, because my children are their only grandchildren. So I fully understand, like, the impact that, that, that us living 12,000 miles away has on people over there. But you know, Granny Skype was alive and well from the very moment and watching my mom read stories to my kids, play hide and seek with my kids over Skype, you know, it was a special kind of joy. And they have such an amazing kind of bond. I'm sure they would have an amazing bond if we lived in the same country, but that's how I reconcile it, is that they still have a really amazing bond. And as we get older and our families are getting frailer, more frail, as our kids are getting older, there's just new conversations to be had about whether you know, this is the right place for us and how do we manage it? And COVID was one of those times, you know, that it, we felt it so keenly. My partner's father died during COVID. We weren't able to go back. So, yeah, we, we fully understand that it has ramifications for us all living over here, both negative and positive. And it's an ongoing kind of conversation. Do you ha- find yourself having to sort of harden your emotions sometimes? Because in the scenario you're in, and I'm um, having walked similar to what, what you've had, but um, or journey is around. I've just sometimes had to harden my emotional reaction or response to things. So goodbyes at airports and and leaving is really, really, really hard. <laughs> um, like, but but like you say, we don't you do stop. goodbyes at airports. <laughs> Brits don't tend to, do they? They're very smart. Um, but uh, one of the big factors of this is. Um, being a parent and having children is you actually stop focusing on your own needs and wants so much and you start to see the world through their eyes and what they need and you know they you see them flourishing in the environment they're in and then adjust your thinking also yeah i mean i yeah i my children are like you know most people think about their kids don't they i think they're incredible like they're you know, they're smart, they're compassionate, they've got great emotional intelligence and, you know, they just won't let us get away with anything. Like they remember all of the conversations. So if you start, you know, contradicting yourself and they're ready to like tell you about that. Um, but they, they kind of, I don't know, like hold, yeah, they hold us, they hold us to account because, you know, both my husband and I would consider ourselves to have been progressive and uh and the group that we hang out with but you know like we got nothing on this lot like they're yeah they feel the climate crisis keenly like they're like we just had this incredible conversation at the dinner table last night um, about stuff that was happening at school and the level of sophistication of understanding the school system the individual you know what, what what's right and what's wrong like it is absolutely incredible you know, I've got two boys and their awareness of gender and feminism, yeah, again, is like, yeah, is really so keen, both in the kind 
kind of every day that they're experiencing, but also at that kind of systems level. So, you know, so I, I really hope that what we're able to do is just make the space for people to actually do the work that's required and not gatekeep. And then on an individualized, uh, uh, you know, kind of thing with my kids, we made the move in COVID from living in Sydney to living in regional New South Wales. And we had big conversations about that because we knew that we were taking the kids away from their friends. And they were, you know, cautiously up for it. Maybe that's a bit generous. But they were very clear, like, okay, if we're going to do it, can we stay to the end of term four? I want my eldest is about to start high school. I don't want to start two high schools. Can we do it? So we we fitted all of that in, in the parameters and we moved. They have absolutely thrown themselves into this community and they are thriving, absolutely thriving. So, you know, when we think about what we're going to do in the next five years, you're right, Mark, in that, you know, like, we're going to stay here until they've both finished high school because it would be absolutely unfair to kind of pluck them again out of uh, out of something that they've built so strongly. But I also know that by the time they get to the end of high school, then we're probably not going to see either of them very much again, both from a research perspective, you know that you spend most of the time with your kids before they're 18, but also they've just, you know, they've got that love of life and they've got the travel bug and they're in a very privileged position and, you know, they're going to do incredible things. And no doubt they will also live on the other side of the world from their parents and, you know, we'll back them in that, in that choice. But I do worry about not just them, but their kind of generations who are feeling these crises more keenly and feel a bit powerless because they can see that we haven't done all the things that we could have done to make things better so in some ways i hope that we get out of the way in time to let people who are feel it more keenly get on with the work that needs to happen wonderful and your new life if you like and just for our listeners to understand we're, we're talking sort of far enough away from sydney to be very rural not quite into Queensland. It's on the east coast of, of Australia, isn't it? We we live. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And We're halfway between Brisbane and Sydney. So mm. yeah, six hours drive north of Sydney and five, five and a half of uh in Brisbane. And it's really gorgeous in that it is um it's in the hinterlands, twenty minutes to the ocean, thirty minutes to, you know, really uh ancient rainforests and I feel very lucky to live here and have a really a much better understanding of the size and scale of Australia, not just because we've moved out of Sydney, but also we went around Australia for three months a couple of years ago and uh, all the ridiculous things are true about how massive this place is and how many different, you know, kind of places and peoples there are within it. I know, flying. I remember flying to the UK and leaving New Zealand and go to sleep. And then after six hours waking up and looking down and I could still see the Australian desert and going, when's this going to end? Like this, this yeah. keeps on going yeah. and going. And in, in terms of like your setup, so you've got these two roles for the Siddle Family Foundation yes. and, and also yeah. we discussed around pay what it takes. So working from home, like combining your time, you're, you, you're out in the community a lot. What, what does it look like from a practical yeah. perspective? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really lucky. I work from home for the majority of the time. I do a bit of traveling in the communities that we fund. I'm in Sydney once a month for a week. And then with my 
job I get to do a bit of international travel so just been in the UK for two weeks the year before we went to the States to do some stuff so that's also really fantastic and I I've got a few more different hats as well so I work with another great colleague and this year we took 15 for-purpose CEOs actually to New Zealand uh, on retreat and do some other kind of creative stuff too. So it's super busy on the work front. I work for Siddles three days a week and for everything else around on the other two days. But I, yeah, I love living here because there is a really strong sense of community and I've been welcomed into various kind of groups. So I'm on the Community Land Trust Advisory Committee for the Housing Matters Action Group locally. I was part of the Advisory Committee for the first Social Impact in the Regions Conference that was in September this year with a whole bunch of leaders and service providers in the Mid-North Coast area, which was um, it was the inaugural one and it was a great success. And Kerry Grace, who runs that as an incredible leader, Kerry Pierce and Rose West, who runs Housing Matters Action Group, also incredible leaders so I've got this really nice balance of purposeful work and that takes me globally and nationally as and then this really great kind of connection to local work that happens as well and I find that having a good understanding of all of those levels is really helpful to join the dots on you know what's the best way forward or what's happening we know that like in medicine it's like 20 years to go from research and evidence to practice and sometimes I feel like it's a bit like that in the for-purpose sector. I mean, I really love evidence. I'm a research nerd. My kids are always like, God, don't tell me, mom, you've read some research paper on that. So I love that. But I actually really strongly believe in expertise, kind of on the ground and experience. And so one of the things I love about the Housing Matters Action Group is, you know, there's like 20 people who've lived in this area for such a long time and they've come together over four years to work out what the local solutions are to the affordable housing. So having that lived experience, it just makes all the difference when you're looking at what solutions are going to stick. So, yeah, so it's good to be able to have all my fingers in those different pies, Mark. And, and yeah, and and um, housing or, or property is, is because that's the focus of the Total Family Foundation, like that's the the area in which they they fund. Yes, so we're safe houses for families to thrive, and the Siddles, when we took them through the process of if you're going to do strategic philanthropy, which is what they've always been givers, but they made a decision they wanted to do something a bit more strategic and as a family. And um, so we went we went through the process of trying to uncover what they felt passionate about, what they want to spend their money on. It was just really strong. They feel really lucky that they've got a really strong family. Um, and they feel that that's been a real platform for their success. So they really want to support families that are not so fortunate. And they wanted to give to the places that feel very special to them. They've helped their families in different ways. So that's the Mid-North Coast and the Northern Rivers. And so Charlotte Siddle and I then went into those communities and had conversations. And it was really clear that housing like in many places in Australia, affordable and social housing was a real issue. And part of the way that the Siddle family has made their money is they have Ramsey Property Group. And so they've got knowledge and expertise in that area as well. So that lovely combination of not just funding, but knowledge and expertise really, yeah, combined with the need that made it a no-brainer, really, when we looked at it 
when we looked at it all. Um, so we're 18 months in and uh, we're all still testing out kind of the strategy and the role that the foundation can play. But um, so far, so good. Brilliant. And looking to wrapping up and, and focusing a bit on pay what it takes. One of my previous guests, a guy called Peter Winnicky, talked about actually Australia could give contribute way more in terms of philanthropy and it's behind sort of the states it's behind the uk in, in so many ways would how, how do you know you're going to be had some success around pay what it takes and that shift in mindset and shift in action what will be some of the indicators that are coming through it's really interesting like i love um, pete's work and obviously he's just he's just published his his book and yeah, for, you know, both technically we could be giving more money, but also adaptively we're, you know, certainly from a colonial perspective, we're still a really young country. Um, clearly not taking into consideration the 65,000 years of Aboriginal giving and health, but from that Western colonial philanthropy perspective, we're quite young. And I think there is definitely a cultural conversation that we're having at the moment around what does it mean to give. Many average Australians are really generous with their resources that they give, and I think it's important to remember that. But coming back to pay what it takes, I think the greatest sign of success, Mark, is when we're not talking about it anymore because it's actually just something that we do. And in some ways, I feel like our next bit that we're doing, so we're, we're actually recruiting a new delivery partner at the moment because we're actually going to focus on an implementation pack. What would it take guidelines and principles to actually embed the pay what it takes work within your organization? Because that's what we've, what we've heard is that people are struggling with the practical implementation of it. Um, and we're doing that through a co-design process. So again, that how do we kind of think about trust and power and relationships? So we'll do that together across the across the sector with a delivery partner. And I think we're well on the way to actually thinking about how do we embed this into everyday practice. So it's visible, but it's not the main topic of conversation. And for me, that will be the greatest sign of success is that, you know, it's in everyday lexicon, but it's not, uh, it doesn't feel special kind of any anymore. And then the, then the job will be well and truly done. You know, like we, the Siddle Family Foundation is a public ancillary fund. Pete will have talked about those things too. It's a, a really easily set up philanthropic vehicle. And we work with Australian Philanthropic Services, which sets them up for people and does a really good job of it. The pay what it takes work is embedded in all of the practical guides. Again, when you've got organizations like equity trustees also, like just taking pay what it takes as part of their everyday advice to people who are setting up kind of paths. And that's why I think we're like well on the way to like it becoming normal because the organizations that support people to set up their vehicles are just embedding it in their everyday advice and not making a big deal of it this is how you do philanthropy which is at the good practice kind of end so i want it to move from an innovation to good practice joe taylor massive thank you for joining me on purposely it's been lovely thanks very much mark thanks for listening to purposely podcast please subscribe and leave a review i hope you like what you're hearing because i sure do 